0: The following is a presentation of the Retro Network.
1: Hello, Sequel Questers. This is a Sequel Quest Rewind. Diving back into the archive. To March of 2018, this is episode 71, a Supernatural Sequel Special. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch, so let the adventure begin, now.
2: Welcome to Sequel Quest. Yep, just welcome. Welcome. Happy to have you listening. No parody intro this week. And uh, you know why? Because we got nothing.
1: No prequel, no sequel to a popular film franchise. We couldn't agree on a movie this week, guys. <laughs> so we may have to put it out to the rest of the world for you guys to help us on occasions like this. But we finally just settled on an interesting format for tonight. So Adam, take her away. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, just to be fair, the, you know, the show is not a disarray. You know, we're not going anywhere. We still love what we're doing. You know, it's just that we had a guest scheduled, who had to cancel, pushed us back a week, and then we couldn't all agree on the movies well let me put it this way just so you know what was being pitched at the time like jeremy wanted to do the tom cruise movie oblivion jeff and i haven't seen it Uh, we might not want to see it jeff suggested a little miss sunshine i don't think there's anywhere to go with that i don't you know no offense jeff but come on we took xanadu somewhere yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then i'm pushing for super mario brothers but anyway the compromise was basically each of us chose a movie we were passionate about or interested in at least yeah i'd say more interested Then created our sequel none of us knows what the other is choosing so there's a little bit of mystery there we can get it all out of our systems and then come back next week with our scheduled show which is going to be tron 3 with our old friend michael kennedy so this is not the new format of sequel quest uh, he's not the one who canceled by the way also that that guest will be on in the future <laughs> <Clarify that. laughs> we're not throwing anybody under the podcast bus here life happens you know we're happy to have them on when they're available but yeah so it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting night kind of flying by the seat of our pants but I think we'll all have some pleasant surprises for each of us we'll, we'll see and
0: let's be real here this is not a live podcast people so right. it's not like we have to do you know it's it, I, I, I was excited about doing this I mean you know, uh, we kind of had talked about doing something like this for a while, so mm-hmm. let's not make it sound too crazy
2: here. That's true. It's a, you know, like I said, it's not. This isn't the end <laughs> of the world for us. We just, we're usually have a little bit more focus, and this true. is just kind of a little okay. bit
0: more out An there. An extended going. apology is how we're starting <laughs> this off.
1: As much as you may think it, we have not yet reached the bottom of the barrel for mm, <laughs> terrible sequel ideas oh, or yes.
0: wonderful sequel ideas. Come on, let's now. Have some hope. Yes, optimism.
2: Well, Jeff, you are the most optimistic about tonight, so why don't you kick it off, tell us a little bit about the original film you chose, and then we'll be interested to hear your sequel.
0: Well, it's actually, it's one of my favorites that uh, are kind of like littler known favorites, I guess, but especially after the Oscars a couple weeks ago. Uh, And Shape of Water won, so people actually started paying attention to Guillermo del Toro for the first time, it seems. Uh, (laughs) But one of my favorites of his movies is actually kind of like his first big movie. For those of you that don't kind of know the, the history of Guillermo del Toro, he was actually a makeup artist for a long time. And then in 90, I think it's 1993, he came up with this movie called Kronos, which was kind of like a horror movie. It was in Spanish and it just like crushed the award shows in Mexico. And then it came to Cannes and it won Cannes. And that's what kind of got him noticed. And so then, in Spain, he actually had this next movie, 1995, and it was a big movie there, but it didn't really, it wasn't as big here. Not until now, where he's kind of a big name. But the biggest reason, well, the two big reasons that I love this movie is that one, again, it's kind of early Guillermo del Toro, where he wasn't Pacific Rim, the second Hellboy movie, where he kind of went a little overboard with his whole makeup thing. But this one, not only was this kind of early del Toro, but also, as far as I can tell, this this is the first time that he and Doug Jones had worked together. If you guys don't know who Doug Jones is, Doug Jones is actually the guy that was The Shape of Water. He was the fish man or whatever you call him. He was also the creepy pale man guy in Pan's Labyrinth. He's basically a body actor, but he's actually a real actor too. So this one, he actually appeared as himself. So it's what again, that's what I really like cuz he is an amazing actor. Not only the things that he can do to mean seem kind of otherworldly, but just as an actor alone. Now to be perfectly honest, I did look up his IMDb and he he was actually he had a bit role in Batman Returns as one of the creepy clowns. And, oh, really? Oh, yeah, he did that's cool. he did appear in a couple of episodes of In Living Color. But this was kind of his breakout, like, first big one. So anyway, uh, it was actually – it was released in Spain, and it was called El Diablo en Fuego, which in English, the best translation I've heard is The Devil on Fire. That's just such a great title. So anyway, it takes place in 1936 Spain. I'm kind of reading the IMDB synopsis. In fact, I'll just read it. So, tensions are high after left-wing socialist popular front party officials are elected in February of 1936. Police officer Luis Suenza has been on the force for 10 years, but has been staying out of the political game, though that's becoming harder and harder. Things become even more difficult one night when on patrol, he arrests someone calling himself The Prince. While Luis is driving him to the station, the man begins telling him how the world really works. As he does, the scenery around the car begins changing, taking the duo on a journey behind the scenes of mankind, seeing people as they truly are, uh, from a mother longing to get rid of her children, a priest's secret desires, to a politician's real view of his fellow man. Their journey ends back at the police station in the real world, as Luis hears about his lieutenant having been gunned down by four anti-government youth. In his rage, and with the prince's voice ringing in his ears, he gathers his four fellow policemen to even the score. The prince conjures a window in front of him, uh, showing the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, smirks and walks away as credits roll. Now, this is actually a pretty good synopsis, I thought, but uh, as you can kind of tell, it's definitely a dark... A lot of yeah. Del Toro, even as you see Pan's Labyrinth, is dark, but it usually ends on kind of like a good wins in the end sort of a way. This one didn't. (laughs) Where this one, essentially, as the devil on fire suggests, the devil starts the Spanish Civil War in 1936. And if you know anything about the Spanish Civil War, it was a bloody conflict, essentially between fascists and communists. So it was brutal on both sides. Tens of thousands of people were killed, not even soldiers, it was just nasty. And for me, this is not a movie that I would say I enjoy, but it's a movie for me that I feel really captures that feeling of the terribleness of this event. And and for me especially that scene cuz so and if you guys couldn't tell from the thing is it so yeah so what happens is he's with the guy in the car and then for you don't even quite know why it's happening but you kind of figure out it must be the guy in the back seat cuz Doug Jones is kind of a creepy guy and everything just starts changing and basically it's kind of like Scrooge it doesn't look like Scrooge but if you think about Scrooge <laughs>
2: Buster Poindexter you know, shows up driving the cab
1: exactly oh, wow. exactly
0: but if you get that image in your head of like this kind of being transported to a different place, it's kind of like that in a certain sense, mm-hmm. uh, but it feels very, you know, Guillermo del toro e, where it's very supernatural, otherworldly, but just the scenes that they see, like that first one, the, the uh, it's not actually the first one, but the one where they go and they see this mother and they just kind of like, the way that he conveys the fact that this mother like, Resents her children for what they have done to her, like not in a horrific way, but just in a like, just in a real and dirty sort of a way. Like it really gives kind of a brutal picture of mankind. And and for me, again, not that I love it, I can only watch it every so often. But it's kind of everything that I think Guillermo del Toro. Should be, you know. It was like when he—that's
2: his style, right? It's like the monsters are never really the monsters, right? Right. Humanity are the monsters, and even it reminds me, yeah, because he always has those like that one like disturbing thing. Like I haven't seen this movie, but I always go back to like Pan's Labyrinth when that one guy just gets his face caved in, and you're like, oh, you know. So I'm sure there's gotta be moments like that in this thing. And also, I was thinking people probably think it's weird that if it's a Spanish film that he got Doug Jones in that, but I'm pretty sure that ron perlman was in chronos right so that's where he started his relationship with hellboy yeah, yeah
0: and it's not only that but it's because it was the same thing in pan's labyrinth pan's labyrinth you know was done entirely in spanish even though doug jones didn't speak spanish from what i've heard it's not that he learned spanish fluently but he memorized his lines in spanish so uh, some of that is even more so it was it was kind of like like remember when we did last year and adam you you did uh lion as your movie yeah and that kid that was in Lion didn't actually know English. He just memorized the sounds phonetically. Right, and, he, yeah. and it sounded like he spoke English. So I don't think it's that extreme with Doug Jones, but it's something along those lines. So
2: this movie affected you. So I'm very curious. It sounds like you said it ends on this dour note. So yeah. what do you do for a sequel or is it a prequel? What did you decide to do?
0: It's both as a matter of fact. Oh. And well, I mean, perfectly <laughs> honest, My first thought was as a sequel, uh, especially as somebody who is spiritual and religious and I don't want to see the devil winning. <laughs> um, so my sequel, I would want to do it in Spanish again because to be honest, and, and, and that's the thing too is i don't know for you guys either listeners or uh, adam you and jeremy there's something about a foreign language film it was the same thing i felt about pan's labyrinth is that somehow it seems more significant when it's in a foreign language Mm. like that was the thing when i watched the crouching tiger hidden dragon is that when you watch it in chinese something about it just seems more legit i don't know why but it just does so anyway i would want to do this in spanish again so I call this one El Dia de Diablo. So this is the day of the devil. So we're not getting any happier just yet. So not quite. The movie would actually begin with current day New York City and I would see this like pan shot of it going through the city, seeing the interactions of the people in New York City. And so real kind of hectic, chaotic, I mean, especially building off of that last movie where it was kind of about the worst of mankind, that same sort of a theme where you're kind of seeing humankind not at their best. And in the midst of this, you would eventually focus in on one particular face and you would see that it is the quote, prince. And I'd want to get it, it'd have to be Doug Jones, and we'd have to somehow make him look exactly like he did back in 95. But uh, he's a creepy-looking guy, so it kind of, you know, he, the creepy looks stay the same. So anyway, and, and he would just be kind of walking through the crowd with that same sort of smirk that he had in that first movie, where it's just this kind of like... Knowing thing, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's hard to describe that look that he gets on his face, but just that he has that look as he's walking around. So the movie would, would kind of get going as he gets into a cab and he tells the cabbie his destination. I don't know enough about New York to know exactly where it would be going, but it would be somewhere a little bit of a distance. And then the cabbie ends up getting cut off, so the cabbie starts swearing at the guy or whatever and just goes, "I tell you, man, like." Mankind is a pit of blah 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 or just like griping about mankind or something like that and then Again, the prince is gonna smirk a little bit, and then he's gonna kind of lean back, and I would see him kind of closing his eyes, and then I like going into a flashback. A couple of vignettes, so they would be a little bit longer than just montages, they would be maybe a vignette of about 15, 20, something long enough that you could actually experience the emotion of this. And again, where I would let del Toro kind of play with the feel and the mood of what he's creating. So the first one goes back to the prince meeting this guy back in the 1800s named Maximilian. And he's this really highly moral lawyer who is very anti-death penalty, but he's very pro the downtrodden and the, and the poor. And then the prince meets him, similar to what he did to Louis back in, in, in 1936, painting this picture of exactly how horrible the wealthy are and how everything that is wrong is really the wealthy's fault, eventually building Maximilian, whose last name is Robespierre, up to starting the reign of terror and the French Revolution. And, and again, same sort of a thing where the prince knows all of these thousands of people are going to die at the hands of this guy. And and then another one, jumping forward, I, thought, I saw another one maybe being this actor named John who is just kind of a struggling actor that he's trying to get his way and he convinces him of immortality if he could just shoot the president of the United States. And of course, that's John Wilkes Booth. Uh, then I'd want to do another one maybe around World War II or something to kind of build up because again, we kind of already did the thing 30s, but then something after that. And either way, that was kind of going to be the bulk of the movie. I don't exactly know how you could have a cohesive storyline through all of these vignettes, but that was kind of my idea. But then it would ultimately come back to present day where the cabbie like wakes him up. He's like, hey, hey, Mac, like we're here. Drops him wherever he drops him off and then have some sort of a moment that as the cabbie is driving away the cabbie all of a sudden conjures up his own window just like the prince did in the first one and that he sees that the future of the guy he just dropped off because of how he dropped him off that he's eventually going to be killed or something like that so then we figure out that this cabbie is actually i don't know an angel or whatever and that he has actually then defeated the devil in kind of that same way because he has set everything up It's going to lead to his death. So a happy ending, so to speak. The day of the devil is when he dies. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good little twist there. No, but that's
2: pretty cool. You never know. Maybe Del Toro's looking for an idea to spark him back to his earlier days. And now that he's got carte blanche for whatever he wants to do, I'm sure. (laughs)
0: definitely true.
2: That'll be the one. Okay, Jeremy, how about you? What did you decide to pull out here?
1: Uh, I dug deep on this one. Um, I decided to go with Curse of Mary. And before you jump on it saying it's a horror (laughs) flick, it's not. Okay. Uh, Released in the summer of 2006, Uh, it tried to but failed miserably trying to compete with the Pirates franchise. It struck out uh, many... Many of the actors in this movie have actually requested it be stricken from their IMDb pages due to how badly it flopped.
0: Wait, this isn't the one with Michael Clark Duncan, is it? No. Oh. Which, okay, Okay. sorry.
2: Yeah, I was I was going to say cuz I I remember seeing a trailer for this back in the day cuz I was going to the movies a lot in uh, 2006 and so and I I was particularly thrilled with the Pirates franchise and I had heard yeah, you know, so <laughs> yeah, I Yeah, you've I never saw been them, a real
1: like, fan of them. No, it's that's not my thing. Yeah, so uh, I didn't see this in theaters Either that may be partly why the movie failed. <laughs>
0: because you didn't see it.
1: <laughs> there was so much going on in 2006 during the summer months. Just these are the movies that it had to compete against from April to September: United 93, The Benchwarmers, The Da Vinci Code, Mission Impossible 3, X-Men 3, Click, Superman Returns, Cars, right. Nacho Libre, Tokyo Drift, Pirates, Dead Man's Chest. John Tucker Must Die, Monster House, Lady in the Water, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, Clerks 2, Talladega Nights, The Illusionist, Snakes on the Plane, and The Prestige. I saw a good majority of those films in theaters, Mm. and looking back, I'm wondering, A, when I had the time, and B, when I had the money Mm. to do that.
2: So if it was such a flop, why did you choose this one? Then how yeah. did you come to have any interest in it at all eventually?
1: I came to it because it's it's based on a true story. Oh. The Mary Celeste is naval tale. This ship that just kind of showed up out of nowhere, 400 miles from land, and... They found no trace of why the crew had abandoned ship. And so this this movie, it, it begins with this mystery of them finding the ship and evolves into more of a courtroom drama type thing, along with an investigation and trying to figure out what happened and why this ship, with all of its cargo, the crew's belongings were there, just everybody vanished.
2: Okay cuz cuz that's what I I remember made that's what the trailer was I mean the tra- that's all the trailer showed you so the fact that it turns into a courtroom drama or whatever else like I wouldn't have imagined
1: that you know like I remember mm, right. that element it was maybe I was seeing a teaser I don't know so I decided to follow this up because the ship went back into service like it was returned in the historical records it was returned to the owners of the ship and it just became this cursed name nobody wanted to use it and buy it and every time somebody bought it and used it it was for a loss. So mm. we're diving back in and we're taking the history and giving it a comedic new life twisted oh. from the historical record books. Uh, <laughs> the return of your favorite ghosts, ghouls and phantoms haunting the high seas. <laughs> Captains of her cursed wheel keep dying under mysterious circumstances. Alas me, mates. The Phantom, Captain Briggs, and Ghost Crew are back, this time haunting the cursed Mary Celeste until its final voyage. Wait, does that... That's your pitch.
2: That's all you're getting. (laughs) We gotta choose your, your pitch to get more out of that. OK, so but you're saying it's this is a comedically charged
1: film. Yeah, because you can't take it too seriously because it's just a lot of transactionary things. But all the captains keep dying mysteriously <laughs> and the ship even <laughs> dies mysteriously. There's karma involved and all sorts of things. So if we bring the ghosts of the ghost crew back, we can explore that and have a little fun with it. OK, maybe explain away some of these captains deaths. We shall see. We shall see. All right, well... I think it's interesting
2: that we all went historical here, or these films are kind of set with like a supernatural feel in olden times. I didn't know we were all so interested in these things. I feel like we haven't chosen that many movies with these slants, so maybe we need to put that on the <laughs> we schedule. We haven't yet. <laughs> but my movie, I kind of have a weird history with this film because it's old. It's from 1984. It's a film that I saw playing on the two o'clock movie block that was a 2 a.m. Fox channel 11 in the mid 90s. Oh my thing. goodness. Because I have this weird period from like 12 to 13. Maybe it was all the hormones. I couldn't sleep <laughs> at night a lot of times. And I would just go out and turn on the TV. It'd be weird movies like Vendetta <laughs> or all these odd movies. Alligator, I think, was one. And everything is always extra creepy or weird that early in the morning when you're kind of out of it. And um, so this one is called The Slayings at Salem. I don't know if that rings a bell to you guys at all. I don't know if, Jeff, you possibly we're up at 2 a.m. and watching channel 11 I don't know <laughs> but when I look at it I'm almost pretty sure it's where Joss Whedon stole the idea for Buffy the Vampire Slayer the movie no. that he wrote <laughs> even though it got changed you know that's about vampires this movie's about witches but as I go through it you might see some parallels there so again the slangs at Salem Donald Sutherland was in it Jeremy Irons was in it. I didn't I didn't know these actors really from anything like the they're kind of like a different generation of films I usually watch you know Cheryl Ladd I knew I think she was on uh, Charlie's Angels And this guy Timothy Bottoms who was in a lot of 80s 70s movies anyway it was actually directed by Toby Hooper Poltergeist and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and stuff so it's kind of his realm I guess but basically it tells the story of a British preacher his name was Arthur Craven that was Donald Sutherland he moves to Salem Massachusetts in the late 1600s with his younger sister her name was Ashlyn that was Cheryl Ladd and then her husband was Kent and that was Timothy Bottoms And but they kind of hint at the beginning that this preacher's got a secret and at one point Pastor Craven you know whatever they call him there he was uh, he finds that his sister has been seduced by this charismatic man who kind of comes in and out of the town and his name's Morlock that's Jeremy Irons just being super creepy and quiet and sinister but he seems to have like complete control of this girl's actions and so All of a sudden, Ashlyn leaves her husband out of nowhere. She moves to the edge of town with this group of outsiders that all the townspeople are always whispering about that they're witches or whatever. And then while this is all going on, Craven reveals to Kent that Morlock is the leader of a coven of witches. And it's like, how do you know that? And so Craven, he's actually part of a society of witch hunters that are trained and then set out worldwide to kill witches. And adding more fuel to the fires, Morlock is the guy that killed Craven. Craven's father got his mother pregnant, and then Ashlyn is the daughter of Morlock out of that whole situation. And so Craven had retired from his witch hunting deal to take his sister to the colonies, so her heritage wouldn't be known to her. All those things, so it's now it caught up with him anyway. So word gets out that there are real witches, and people are like accusing each other, and that's where the sale of witch trials start brewing in the background. But meanwhile, Craven is training this small group of people that are close to him to battle Morlocks Coven, and they do this whole battle. You know, there's 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 a lot of like seduction of Ashlyn and her, like in these witchcraft rituals. But the problem is the townspeople are focusing on the not real witches and these people are getting accused and stoned and whatever else. And so it all comes together where they, they finally do capture Morlock's coven and they bring them to town. They say, no, these are the real witches and they tie them up and they're going to burn them at the stake. But Morlock does this incantation as they're burning that supposedly is going to allow the witches' souls to inhabit the bodies of their blood relatives. And Craven's tried to stop it and tried to do this little spell of his own, but he is getting attacked by the townspeople because they want to burn Ashlyn, his sister, because she was with the witches. And so he's fighting back, he's getting beat up, and the, you know, so ultimately he chooses to save his sister rather than finish his spell at the end. So it's kind of that like die. A lot of films of the 70s are kind of like this, and I carried over to this one. So where he's overcome by the mob, Morlocks laughing as he gets consumed by the flames, you know, Jeremy Irons getting all burned and stuff. And then at the end of the movie, they show this whole situation where this young boy just rises out of the smoldering wreckage of the witch encampment. They had like gone and attacked them and done all this stuff. And all of a sudden he gets surrounded by these like shadowy souls of all the murdered coven of witches. And then it just cuts to black. And that was the end of the movie. And I was always like, that's the end that was, like, the best part of the movie. So, anyway, but I I mean don't know. Are you guys, as far as, like, filmography, like, is Jeremy Irons a big one for you? Because, like, I know him from Lion King and Justice League now. Like, I don't know him from anything else. I, I guess Die Hard oh, with a Vengeance, right? Really? But, but like, but this is one of those things where, like, I didn't know who he was back then, and only recently <laughs> I was like, oh, it was that guy from the slings at Salem.
0: Yeah. No, yeah. not his no.
1: work. <laughs> He's...
0: Well, the funny thing about Jeremy Irons, Jeremy Irons... It, I think is maybe the best actor in Hollywood, personally. Oh, wow. But he does a lot of really bad movies. Like, it totally doesn't surprise me that he did this movie. Like, he did the Dungeons and Dragons movie. He did oh, really? like uh, Yeah. He did
1: Aragon. Ooh. Yeah. Pink Panther 2. Yeah. He doesn't pick the best
0: scripts, okay. Not always, not always. But, I mean, like, for me personally, like, even with um, Man in the Iron Mask, he stole the show and everybody would was agree amazing, there. except for Leonardo DiCaprio. Everybody else was amazing <laughs> in that movie. And, and he was phenomenal. He's somebody that always collects a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, that could be it. Now, Adam, is this the one where the daughter or the sister or whatever she was, was she She had like really blonde hair and was always kind of speaking in this really airy voice? Cheryl I feel Latin like I have seen like, this one then.
2: Yeah, she, she's not the greatest actress. And I don't know why she's in this with all no. these kind of other upper tier actors but because she's why? like a TV actress but you know either way I guess they just think yeah. she's cute put her in there because there is yeah. like an implied like nudity scene I only saw the TV cut so I never went to <laughs> it I don't know if there's more to it but anyway so and even this concept I, I, I didn't see the last witch hunter but it kind of sounds like Vin Diesel or whoever was producing that film also knows about this because I mean there's that whole concept of a secret society hunting down witches you know just seems like it's there and even Donald Sutherland going back to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer he was the trainer in Buffy the Vampire Slayer right Right. so again Joss Whedon we're on to you just because you thought (laughs) nobody saw this but anyway Uh so That always stuck with me. And even when I was in like sixth grade, I started creating this drawing, like based on what I thought that collection of souls around this kid was going to look like. Cause I was like, what did they do with that? What was he, I guess he was going to do something if they were given him power or whatever, unless they were just attacking him. And so I created this character called the night stalker and all that. And then I was like, okay, well there's movies, TV shows, comic book characters, actual murderers called the night stalker. I was like, that That name doesn't work. And so <laughs> when I was in college, I started writing like a little treatment and I, I updated it and I decided to call this sequel Avenging Son. Ooh. So the my sequel actually opens immediately after the events of the last film with Arthur Craven trying to save his sister, but failing. And so she actually gets burned at the stake along with the witches and he gets really injured, but manages to escape to the woods to mourn in hiding and meanwhile the townspeople are celebrating but that night several of them are abducted by this horrific wraith that's shrouded in this robe of darkened souls and Craven comes upon the witch encampment and discovers the wraith returning at dawn and transforming back into the witch boy and so Craven comforts this frightened child who doesn't know what just happened to him got all possessed and you know went after a bunch of people. Craven knows what happened and so that night as the sun is setting, Craven performs a ritual that exercises the souls of Morlock and his coven as they're reappearing to go into the boy and traps them in this amulet and then Craven tries to kill the boy reluctantly but he's doing it so there'd be no more blood relatives for Morlock to inhabit should he escape but he's weakened and he's got the grief on him and all these things and Craven basically dies before he can stop the boy and he, the kid runs away so then there's like a credit sequence where we see the boy growing and studying his entire life he's trying to release his family from this prison and the amulet and then we finally see he's an old man man and he he collapses dead while writing out this final ritual in this journal so now it's modern day and we meet officer Daniel Murdoch and he's a Boston beat cop he really sees the world in black and white you know everybody's good guys or bad guys that's all there is and he's chasing down this criminal who gets away and he just can't let it go. And he starts neglecting all these other calls on his radio just so we can catch this one guy. Then as the week goes on, he's still just ignoring stuff so he could put pieces together. Where'd this guy go? Where'd this guy go? And so that's jeopardizing his upcoming promotion to sergeant. Meanwhile, Daniel's getting ready to propose to his girlfriend, Beth, and he's planning to give her this amulet that's been in his family for generations in lieu of an engagement ring. Just kind of a, a little quirky new way of proposing and he's telling his landlord about it who runs this used bookstore that's below Daniel's apartment about his plans and the old man claims to have seen this amulet before in one of his antique books It gives Daniel the journal with an inscription reading Morlock and so while reading about the amulet Daniel accidentally summons the spirits of Morlock's coven who appear to him they explain you know they've been waiting to exact their revenge on the Salem townsfolk because all the kid did that night was tuck them away in this limbo state but they needed a living relative to perform the grisly deed you know to actually murder these people and get their revenge so Daniel's told that his real surname is Morlock it was just changed over the decades and he's then possessed against his will and then he wakes in the morning and he thinks it was all just this crazy nightmare where he was killing a bunch of colonials you know (laughs) he was just oh it's that weird journal I was reading you know so that day at work Daniel keeps spotting this old man man who's following him on his beat and when the man shows up at Daniel's apartment he tries to arrest him but the stalker turns out to be a ghost and the ghost refers to himself as Arthur and tells Daniel that he's the only Obi has for escaping the real nightmare that's coming so Daniel refuses to accept the truth and then as the sun sets Arthur disappears and the coven return and Morlock tells Daniel that this is his destiny they're giving him great power to correct the injustice he's going to be the event son. And so they say they're not satisfied now with the death of just their killers, but now they want the lives of the descendants of these Salem townsfolk. And so they take possession of Daniel again, turning him into this wraith, but they're allowing him to be conscious for the event this time. And it turns out that the criminal who got away is on their hit list. So Daniel stops the guy from bugging some people on the subway, causing the guy to jump to his death out of the subway car, you know, just in absolute terror. So Daniel's feeling like he finally has the ability to get real justice. Daniel agrees to take on the mantle of the Avenging Son as long as people they're targeting are actual criminals. So initially, Daniel's in good spirits. You know, he finally proposes to Beth, but she and his police captain start noticing a change in him and then Arthur's ghost keeps kind of appearing to him in the daytime trying to convince him to escape from the clutches of the, you know, the influence of these ancestors but Daniel's enjoying this newfound power too much but he finally resists one night when he finds out the next target is his fiance of course uh, so only through sheer force of will is he able to prevent her death as she's terrorized on the Boston streets and he's kind of pulling himself out out of the cloak of souls and temporarily revealing his face to her. And so she's still injured though. It ends up in the hospital. So he goes to visit her, tells her the truth about what's going on with them. Arthur appears as well. And so he is telling both of them that the problem is Daniel gave himself over too long to this e- evil. So he doesn't have the agency to resist anymore. And the only way now for him to be free is if a pure soul were to give their life to absorb These evil spirits creating a new place to capture them and to keep them from escaping. So Arthur gives Daniel about some quick training on how to combat the coven when they come back, you know, when the sun sets. So that night, the climax is at Daniel's apartment. Morlock appears and Daniel tries to summon Arthur to help him but Craven's spiritual form is destroyed. So he's just dead, dead. And Daniel holds off the transformation of the avenging son as long as he can using this training he got, but he's about to be possessed. And it's over when Beth appears, you know, she got out of the hospital to go sacrifice herself for Daniel, proclaiming her love for him. And she absorbs the coven and then her purity of battling the evil within her just kind of tears her apart and she dies. So Daniel's dead. Devastated, obviously, after her death, and he goes to her funeral but afterwards he gets visited by Beth in a ghostly form and she says that she bargained for her own soul to be you know, released from all of that influence and was given the right to bestow the power of the avenging son on Daniel for use against the forces of evil and so he transforms one more time as we go into credits there you go avenging son
0: so <laughs> he wins he loses I got confused
2: well he wins but I mean it depends how you look at it like she dies yeah. so he does get to marry her but she isn't actually destroyed the way he thought and then it's kind of now he's got the power to create a new franchise
0: <laughs> okay but so she does her sacrifice enables him to be have control and whatever right so, so okay. it's
2: basically what's you know next movie would be what's he gonna do with that power now you gotcha. know like so yeah
0: all right I'm with you
2: all right so this is it now we start talking about what do we want to see uh, in theaters which of our pitches newly introduced to most of us uh what do we like best so jeremy
1: how about you who do you want to vote for here oh boy um you know what? Come back to me. I'm I'm still thinking on this. I can't decide between either of yours. I'm not really a fan of uh, witches and junk. Like, I, growing up... You like pirates, but you don't like witches? Come yeah, on. Yeah. Like, well, think about this. These are the types of witches that I grew up around. Hocus Pocus. Practical Magic was a little weird. The teen Witch. Sabrina the Teenage Witch. The Craft. Anything uh, no. Mm, Feruza yeah. Balk. No, Nev Campbell. Halloween Town. And uh, like the the cheesy, like Disney esque type witches. So we're going to uh, finally
2: make them scary,
1: Jeremy. Come on.
2: Uh, well, no, now you're making the
0: witches a superhero.
2: Yeah, well, right. eventually. Yeah, yeah. By the end. <laughs> there you go. He's kind of like the Punisher, but he's a witch.
0: Punisher, so, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> sure but the witch, right wow. there. Yeah, I'm like a Punisher, but he's a witch. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, uh, I'm gonna hold so, off. So, but but Jeff, Jeff's
2: the devil. You want the devil? or You want witches? You yeah, decide. those are your two options here, buddy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I may need to hold off and be the tiebreaker here. I okay, wanna I want to see fine.
2: what you guys do jeff what about you
0: well i'm gonna have to go with the witches because I, I the the teaser wasn't wasn't uh i know you were teasing us jeremy but uh i just i didn't get enough to bite to bite just yet on the on the pirates and to be perfectly honest like we were talking about i think pirates burned more bridges for me than witches did so <laughs> uh, and of course my wife being the harry potter fan would want me to vote for the witches so okay there you go, see, Jeremy,
2: witches! <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they're wizards, right? They're not witches, Jeff. Well,
0: well those the females. Like the females Hermione would be witches. Witch.
2: Right. Oh, I guess you're right. Okay. Um, so for me, uh, I think I'm also in the same boat. Ah, no fun uh, intended. Fun intended. But, <laughs> but, but Jeremy, I was like, I, I like the idea of turning a flop and taking it into a full comedy direction, but I was just like, I don't, I don't, I guess I'm just, it's just funny deaths for captains, and I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. With Jeffs, I was like, okay, well, the devil's going throughout history, and he's having some influence. Good wins in the end. The devil doesn't even know it, which is funny. So I think I was going to vote for Jeffs on that. Even though it's kind of a a darker film, again, I feel like there's something to be said in that universe that we could do.
1: All right, I'm going to have to flip a coin here. And the witches have it. Hey! hey.
2: Avenging son. So I guess this is the question then, because Jeff, you sounded a little confused at the end. Yeah. What was there some, were there some plot holes or some logic that didn't connect for you
0: <laughs> in, in well, this whole
2: development? To be,
0: to be honest, I'm not sure how closely I watched that original movie. So I can't I, I feel like I would have remembered a bad guy named Morlock especially because I kept getting Morlock and Craven confused
1: right because
0: they both
2: sound evil. They No. Sound,
0: uh, they do but I know like uh, in the movie I would just I just kept calling him Donald Sutherland so I, <laughs> I, I didn't even think yeah. that he had a name
2: so well, like, we can't really change the names though if this no, is a sequel featuring those evil, characters yeah
0: with that
1: but I honestly kept thinking well, the only Morlocks I know are the X-Men right. and Craven yeah, really? the Hunter. So
2: Which is but... again, I think the writers, I mean, because I think the Morlocks were created like in the mid eighties. So, you know, no. maybe John Byrd oh, and Chris Claremont watched this film gonna, too oh. and just oh. okay, yeah.
0: The Morlocks are from HG Wells Time Machine, people. Oh. No, they were from this B v- movie.
1: <laughs> which was a Jeremy Irons thing. Jeremy Irons is in the time machine? Yeah. He was H. G. Wells.
0: Yeah, that was one of
1: his um, not so hot movies. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, that's Guy not Pierce.
2: the one where he goes after Jack the Ripper. No, somewhere no, no, no. In time. That, that's, that's a different
1: a one.
0: No, it was the one with Guy Pierce. It was when Guy Pierce actually had his shot at being oh, a star. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Was, which they cut out in the original movie, but it's in the original book where he's the future of mankind, which <laughs> he does creepy well. Anyway, but he's not – we're yeah. not talking about him. So basically he, he's a cop, right, that finds yeah. out that he's actually a witch and that they want him to become this wraith. And So now what does this wraith look like in your eyes? He's scary? Well-
2: yeah, I mean, you know, the way I used to draw him, again, when I was imagining what would they do with this, he almost had a full fan of the Opera mask, and then he looked like Cloak from Cloak and Dagger, the comic book. And I was oh. like, eh, it's a little too derivative, and so I started reimagining him. Like I say, I almost see him, we talked about Harry Potter, I also think about Lord of the Rings, but those wraiths that were in oh. those movies, kind of more, less skeletal more voluminous. It's not like actual cloth. It's cloth that's composed of these darkened souls. So he can oh. control it a little bit, like Spawn's cape. I would imagine, you know, like the subway attack where he's going after that criminal he was yeah. chasing. It's like he darkens all the windows, and then he just like is scaring the guy to death. And you know, I imagined he would be able to smack people around
0: with it. Right. The powers. Of- well, I feel like that's actually a pretty good, like Spawn. That sounds like a pretty good comparison, mm-hmm. except for the whole being dead thing yeah okay
2: and he's not a witch per se he's just a blood relative right. of some people that were right. witches <laughs>
0: so now because i was thinking too as you were going through it i was i was remembering our when we did our sequel to the fly and i think that was how we landed on it about that idea that the flies off at least that was my pitch i don't remember if that's the one we voted for but my pitch was that the, the fly's son turns into he's like a cop that realizes that he could be a super cop or Whatever, because of his uh, his power.
2: Wasn't he a firefighter?
0: I think. Right, you're right. He was a yeah. firefighter. So in this case, yeah, it's it's like that. But now, now, is it that like the evil is taking over, or is it what? How how do you see that? Well, happening?
2: though it, it's Morlock and the the coven, like they are convincing him. That it's a good thing. That's why, like, they they're specifically choosing the targets after the fact that they want to continue, you know, getting revenge on these descendants. They're basically saying, "Look, these are criminals. You want to stop them." And so they're seducing him into allowing it because eventually their goal is they're just going to take him over completely and have him kill, kill, kill all the time to satiate their bloodlust. So it's more that he's. It's not that he's a hundred percent turning evil, but he is being. Manipulated manipulated to think that he's doing the right thing. He's getting the justice he can't get. Like so many, you know, that start out as cops and then they say, ah, I got to go on my own. It's the only way to do the right thing. It's This is the real right thing, you know? So there's kind of that moral conundrum there, but he's not 100% going over to the dark side. He's just confused.
0: Right. So then as an audience, we're supposed to connect to the cop, but not the coven. They're the bad guys.
2: Correct.
0: Okay. But he's not...
2: Does he ever fight against them? Well, that's just the end. Like, the climax is, right, him waking up and realizing, oh, and, you know, it's the fact that his next person he almost kills is his fiance. That's what wakes him up and says, oh, you know, this is wrong. I, sh- I, sh- I should have been, you know, more aware of my own morality and what is right and what is wrong, you know? So he's basically fighting them in the end, but it's more that she saves him. I guess the climax isn't so heroic for him other than he's resisting he's doing all these little spells that craven has taught him but it's not enough and so that's why beth has to come in at the end and sacrifice herself I'm with so, you. so you, you get the action of what he would be doing but you know if he was in complete control you see a couple of those chases of criminals but he's not the hero yet jeremy what were your thoughts Was there something that didn't quite connect
1: for you because you are a connoisseur of superhero type tales no, it works. I'm just trying to think how to enhance the villain. Because a lot of these type stories, mm. you gotta have an engaging villain. Or else it turns into Thor. The Dark World. Oh. Yeah. I thought at one point about possibly saying
2: that they find one more blood relative and then they go and there's a more evil race. I don't know. I feel like, like that there would be like a clash. Yeah, yeah that's what I think it would be.
0: Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is with Jeremy Irons is so you've got the gravitas. You just have yeah. to give him the role. So do they appear like in ghostly form or is it just a voice or... Because that could be significant, too.
2: Right, yeah, the visual of it. Yeah, I I always Mm -hmm. kind of imagined sort of similar to Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, where they are deteriorating. Like, they are spiritual forms, but maybe we need to have some sort of timetable for them. Like, they've now been brought back, but maybe they have to have body to possess more completely in a certain amount of time. So that's why Morlock is getting a little bit more intense or something. But yeah, I I always Mm -hmm. picture that more ghostly and a little gross you know so they are scary you know you, they're not debonair people that are walking around and talking <laughs> to him there has to be some edge
0: i know it sounds like their their motivation is just revenge right, right. So they just want to kill all the people that killed them so yeah. what if it's their secret motivation that they don't tell him is the fact that maybe they need the blood of their killers or something like that must that that's how they will then be brought back. And mm. so, because I just okay. feel kind of like Jeremy was saying, is that one, yeah, you need to have kind of a, a presence of a villain. But I feel like, especially because we're talking about this guy gaining these abilities, which he's like pretty into or whatever, I feel like we need a final conflict where he's able to turn his abilities against the bad guy. So if in some way, like maybe there's been enough sacrifices that just Morlock has been able, or maybe towards the end, or maybe he's back, but he's not strong enough or or whatever. And that somehow one last one, or maybe he even sacrifices one of his coven. Would that be... Inappropriate. I mean, of course it wouldn't be, like, <laughs> too inappropriate. And then that somehow brings him back. Then the, the cop has to fight Morlock.
2: This might be a better way to go then, yeah, is I like that idea that maybe as they kill the descendants, then Morlock, like you said, can come back to a corporeal form and gain strength and power from that. But what if it's that the coven that we're making, you know, Daniel, the cop, the avenging son, once a Morlock has a corporeal form, they jump on. On him, So he becomes that wraith. And now Daniel doesn't have the power. They're going to kill him. But maybe Craven brings the souls of the townspeople that he murdered originally at morlock's request now that they've been killed maybe craven can transfer their power to daniel so it's kind of like a wraith versus wraith but ones of light ones of darkness type thing or something i don't know how you guys feel about that so then Mm. you kind of have similar powers battling each other unless that's too cliched at that point maybe i don't know
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: could be but I, I understand what you're saying because like to your point Jeremy I, I thought that the the conflict and the you know when you say a good villain I feel like it was more about Morlock's the way he's trying to corrupt Daniel's soul and it's the battle for his purity and his soul that's really at stake as opposed to like a knockdown drag out fight like we were just talking about it's not about yeah. who has the biggest stick it's about who has the greatest character the greatest sense of justice that's true or whatever you know like so it's more of a philosophical battle there's happens to be these supernatural elements in play he's Mm -hmm. a good villain because of the type of villainy he's portraying throughout and then he's defeated by the purity of the girlfriend was kind of the concept unless that just seems like too much of a cop-out a deus
1: well no that's very much cloak and dagger as you were mentioning their Mm -hmm. relationship so, yeah, the light
2: and the darkness, yeah. Yeah,
1: the symbiotic relationship there. Yeah, I guess that works.
2: Yeah, but I mean, what, what I, would you guys think casting wise for someone who could play off that? Because like my initial thought was somebody like Jake Gyllenhaal. Although mm. I feel like he's too big for this type of movie, but yeah. I don't know. You know, because they're talking about him maybe playing Batman, so I feel like he could give us kind of those dark Dotty Darko. He was kind of yeah. always weird throughout that whole movie, but you know, you you know he's got that side to him he can bring out when you need to, yeah. where he's like jovial and happy, and then all of a sudden he just like uh, dark. Circles around the eyes. What's going on with this guy? You know. Hmm.
0: What about? It might be interesting. What was the the guy's name from Get Out? He had an interesting played, and, and then it, it's almost a similar sort of a thing. Like they did not Get Out when he's being brainwashed and everything, being controlled and all.
2: Yeah, and they were not whitewashing the film.
1: <laughs>
0: right. Oh well, because my thought is making Daniel so drastically different
2: yeah that'd be really cool actually that gives it a a whole nother element for sure i mean and even if we wanted to you could possibly play on that that could add to morlock's villainy as well maybe he has a disdain for the fact that now his bloodline has been mingled you know like Mm. there's like this race racial element that he could be Again, that can make us hate him all the more. That's you know? true. Something That's along true. those lines. Yeah. And otherwise, I guess That's there aren't any too many major the, roles. The, the girl, right? The girlfriend. So, yeah. again, maybe someone who's starting to get a little bit more buzz or
1: okay so the girlfriend has to be related to the witches or no yeah. she,
2: she was just related to the colonial people in Salem right, so the true. townspeople but she wasn't a witch anya
1: taylor joy she's kind of an up-and-comer what's she from let's see she's from split the witch thoroughbreds hey. i mean <laughs> oh, yeah. it's it's in Open there the she's way. also in new yeah. mutants i believe oh. she's tabbed to play magic okay Kaluya. he's 28 she's 21 you could also go with olivia cook uh she's from bates motel ouija the quiet ones uh, she's also in the upcoming Ready Player One. So they have
2: some experience with Supernatural.
1: Yeah. They've got a lot of uh, a little bit of experience there with it. Mm. But
2: who of those actresses just again, because I'm not super familiar with them, who exudes the greatest Goody Two shoes, such a pure and sweet soul, like that, that that's been displayed, not necessarily like streetwise and tough. They're actors, so they can play. <laughs> I'm Which one would you lead towards that says, oh, I would I would buy her some sort of angelic
1: figure
0: I was picturing her more like strong willed. No well, yes, I, could. I would say
1: that. I mean, she can be strong-willed, but of a pure heart. Right. Right,
0: right, right. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to be like it is super innocent
2: necessarily, mm. but just like...
1: You. Anya Taylor-Joy looks like she could play more on the dark side of the witch's l- side. Yeah. Uh-
0: oh, you know what? What about... Where were we just talking about? Who was the gal? I can never remember her name. We just saw her in uh, Downton Abbey, and she was in that new Cinderella movie. Oh, the one I brought up on the Oscars yeah. show? Yes. Lily James. Yeah,
1: Lily James.
0: Yeah. James. Okay. Yeah. It seems I, like she has more of that angelic to talk about. Oh, uh, yeah. I guess she's not actually a blonde. She's a blonde in, I don't know Cinderella. why blonde makes yeah. more angelic, but she, not only, not only her hair, but she has just kind of her voice and she has kind of that air about her.
2: That could work. Yeah. I think that would be, I mean, I, again, I, I mentioned that I liked her and all the stuff I've seen her in so far last time. So I think that would be a pretty strong casting choice. I was actually leaning
1: Olivia Cook. But this one, Lily James would work. If they both have a similar look to them, they both have naturally dark hair. So it really doesn't matter. You can play it off either way. The, the, the last person I was just thinking was, you know, the store
2: owner that, you know, the antique bookseller who's his landlord. Like, who's the kindly old man that you want to uh, be his friend in town you know his little mentor I was trying to think of an older actor whether it's like a genre actor or somebody you just want to bring in for a a fun role
0: Is this his mentor or what? I didn't Mm. understand that because then Craven shows up somehow, right? Yeah, Craven's
2: his mentor. This guy's more just like his friend. So it would almost be like probably a more comedic role. It'd Hmm. be somebody who's just a little bumbling old man who just loves his books and he makes little jokes that nobody gets. He's the only one that thinks they're funny, that type of thing. But he's how how old? 70s, I was thinking.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you're looking at like the Morgan Freemans, the James. James Earl Jones, hmm. Lawrence what about,
0: Fishburne. I don't know if you guys watch uh, This Is Us, but what about Ron Cephas Jones that plays the dad on This Is Us, William? Yeah, you could do that. He has Are that being sort of we racist
2: our casting if we're only trying well, to find an African American actor to be. An African American character's friend. <laughs>
0: like, no, but I mean, but that... but his mentor is a white guy. His bad guy is a white yeah, guy. His girlfriend true. is. Oh, it would totally make sense. I think it would actually be if he's literally the only black guy in this entire movie. Then, <laughs> then it's Get Out get Part out Two. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So with the with the shopkeeper, like, is he just a collector of the occult books? Does he have some tie to the? supernatural or is he just strictly an old man who collects old books
2: exactly yeah that's how i imagined him he's just a normal person he doesn't play into the plot heavily other than to just be a little bit of a sounding board for daniel the i didn't realize that the character's name is daniel no the actor we're casting (laughs) is daniel
1: could could we do just uh cuba gooding jr in old man makeup why he needs work is that what you're saying wow cuba Back in the spotlight. I mean, uh, wasn't he OJ recently? Uh, Danny Glover.
2: I was going to say Danny Glover. Yeah. I mean, he did a similar role in Be Kind Rewind. What about Reginald Bell Johnson?
0: Pass away. Is I don't think so.
2: <laughs> I think on our Die Hard episode, we asked about that. They were like, nope, he's still here. Well, we it's been a little while. It's hard. It's hard. There's so many talented older well, actors.
0: Well,
2: I just like the idea because he seems like the guy who, even when he was playing Carl Winslow, and I was just watching family matters last night That's yeah but, now, we're, uh, now
0: we're getting to it <laughs>
2: but he he just seems like the kind of guy who could play a little bit guarded little bit weird guy even though he's jovial but he's also a little awkward well uh, like either him or tim reed as well was he in the it miniseries was that tim reed yeah the same one yeah he was oh. in it I, actually, Tim Reed would be really good. Now that I think about him, thinking about he played <laughs> he played the librarian, you know, and it he was kind of had a little bit of something going on behind behind his eyes there that you were like, oh, he's got a dark past. Oh, it's Pennywise. Oh, <laughs> all right, Tim Reed it is. And then director wise, I mean, unfortunately, Toby Hooper is passed, so he can't take on this role. So hey, why don't we just borrow from Jeff? You think Guillermo del Toro would be interested in doing this? Or we give uh, Joss Whedon an actual opportunity. Hey, why don't you just fess up to it? You stole Buffy from this concept. Now you can make it it real. Use your superhero tendencies. You're good with your comic book storylines. He would spruce up the script for us.
0: Other than the fact that it doesn't seem like a Del Toro thing. I mean, there is the supernatural, obviously. Yeah. We got the vampires or whatever, yeah. Witches. Yeah. I mean, especially like we were talking about with kind of his roots and kind of the horror genre and and I thought like at least the first Hellboy, you know, he does well in the superhero era. Yeah. I still contend that Shape of Water was also a superhero movie, but that's a separate <laughs> story.
2: Let's do it! Come on, we we'll got Del Toro in there. It'll be another Oscar-winning film. Clearly, clearly. <laughs> but, but that's what always happens, right? People win their Oscar and then they make bad choices afterwards. <laughs> so this could be that bad choice. I'll accept it. Go. Take my screenplay. You can blame me. Look what I was working with. That's my Del Toro. That was your Del Toro. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Good.
0: Good.
2: I guess with that.
1: It doesn't really matter because is the jig up? Can we
0: April Fool? <laughs> April Fool? <laughs> yeah,
1: folks, we totally just BS'd six different movies for this show. None of those existed.
2: You are probably checking IMDb while you are listening and saying, "Um, excuse me, uh, I do not believe uh, Jeremy Irons was in production on this film." Yeah.
0: Uh... So just to <laughs> clarify, the three <laughs> movies that we said we were basing sequels on, none of those movies actually existed. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Doesn't mean they still couldn't. You like them? Take it. But we just want to share with you that we have some original ideas too. And uh, what could we do with them?
1: I don't don't know about you guys, but I went pretty deep into it and made sure my actors weren't actually in production on movies (laughs) at that time.
2: Well, what was funny was I actually was listening to this other great podcast. It's called 80s All Over where they basically go year by year, month by month, and talk about every film that was released in the 80s. And the one I was listening to today, their episode just came out. They had back-to-back talking about a Donald Sutherland film and a Jeremy Irons film in 1983. So my being in 1984, I was like, oh, perfect. It would fit right in. They could have been working (laughs) on this. So any 80s all-over fans out there, you were like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But I like what you guys came up with actually Jeff yours was pretty mind-bending. Jeremy, yeah. I thought that was interesting. The, uh, again, having a pirates competitor that flopped. <laughs> that was right. A good cover. Yeah. So there you go. We're just having a little fun. We gotta celebrate the holiday somehow. You know, we're not just gonna do a an episode with silence or something. Oh no, we're giving away our ideas for future episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, we are coming back next week, like we said, Tron Three Michael Kennedy will be here. Real decide back into Not what a joke. We do.
0: This is seriously gonna happen.
2: Yeah, this is the yeah. real deal.
0: <laughs> Tron did exist, and
2: so did Tron Legacy. Go back and check. Outside of that, for those that are interested in Not so mainstream films, but want to find something new, something independent that's exciting. I actually got drafted last year to write for a website called popgeeks.net, where I do movie reviews. And they send me all sorts of screener links and stuff. And I'm seeing movies you're not going to find anywhere else. But if you want to go check it out, popgeeks.net, I write under the moniker of hoju coolander and uh, you can find all my reviews there and see if there's anything that looks interesting one in particular that i'll mention was a pretty awesome sasquatch film that may be interesting go on the premise of it was that there's these people that basically you know get lost in the woods and bigfoot is like a warrior Bigfoot is he wears armor that's made of wood and bark and he has, you know, he's got a bow and arrow and stuff. And it's these people, it's, it's kind of like the predator with Bigfoot, you know, like where they're being hunted, but it's all practical effects. (laughs) And it was done by this guy who worked on the Spider-Man films and a bunch of other pretty big name productions. So it's really cool. It's called Primal Rage. It had a one night only screening, you know, Fathom Events did that, but it's coming out soon on DVD and VOD. So that'd be a cool one to check out. But you can go read my review from February on that one. But. You know, most of these movies, are, it's, I'm kind of 50-50. It's like, uh eh, that's so great. Eh, this one was pretty cool in concept or like that one. I was like, okay, this is awesome. Like, People need to see this movie. Anyway, just, just to give you guys something else to look for. Jeremy, you want to plug also just our Marvel 10-year anniversary special?
1: Oh, boy. We are going to get down and nerdy <laughs> with all the Marvel universe and all that it encompasses leading up to Avengers Infinity War on April 27th. Just remember, it's April 27th, not May 4th.
0: They moved it up.
1: (laughs) We're going to roll through an award show type thing with all of our favorite moments. And I believe we're going to go almost six, seven people deep on this. Get as many guests as we can. and Yeah, we're not going to be like every
2: other podcast is probably going to rate every movie, movie by movie. We're not going to get too deep into that. But like Jeremy said, we're going to have some fun with an award show format. So it's just the highlights. What made 10 years of the mcu so special so that'll just be a a bonus sequel chat episode you can keep an eye out for here it's kind of our version of the oscars the movies we obviously care the most about (laughs) so until next time
1: you We thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com or SQPod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is
0: intended. This has been a presentation of The Retro Network.